This is an ABC podcast. How much inequality is okay? Because some of it's inevitable. You can't eliminate it completely. But how much is too much? Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey, and Australia's less equal than it has been since the 1950s. We'll get into that shortly. Let's start with a very weird thing, the US government's debt ceiling. This goes back a long way. It was established by Congress in 1917 as a way of not giving the then-President Woodrow Wilson carte blanche when it came to spending money on World War I. Essentially, the US government spends more than it collects in taxes, so to meet all of its expenses, it needs to borrow. But the law says it can only accrue a debt of so much. At the moment, that so much is $31.4 trillion, a figure it's about to hit. Over the last 106 years, Congress has raised this ceiling many times. But this time the Republicans want concessions or they won't agree. Betsy Stevenson's one of America's leading economists. Betsy, what will happen if the ceiling isn't raised in time? The truth is nobody knows what would happen because it's a set of laws where The U.S. Treasury doesn't know what to do. By law, it has to pay the bills in a timely fashion. By law, it's not supposed to exceed the debt ceiling. What's it going to do? Which law is it going to break? That's the situation that the U.S. Treasury is facing. And that's why nobody actually can tell you what will happen, because there's nothing in law that says, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then this is what we'll do you know, boom, 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 here's the pattern. It's actually just a weird law that tells you, oh, you just can't do this. But it didn't undo the other laws. I actually think that it was January that the government technically hit its $31.4 trillion debt limit. What has happened between then and now? Um, The Treasury Secretary calls it as extraordinary measures. Extraordinary measures means that they're moving money around a lot trying to make sure that they don't go over. Some of these extraordinary measures are just things that are real hardship. You know, for example, they're not making the kind of loans to state and local governments that they usually make when a state and local government uh, isn't ready to pay its full federal tax bill and it might want to borrow from the Treasury. Well, that counts as borrowing, so that's something that they've stopped doing So it's a lot of technical shuffling paper around to try to make sure that they're never exceeding the the debt ceiling. But there are obviously real limits to how long they can, you know, get away with doing that. Well, I think Janet Yellen has said that the likely default rate now is being brought forward. And and this is not exact, but it could be as early as the 1st of June. Why is that? What's happened to kind of pull that date closer? So the reason that they can't get a very accurate estimate of the date is because really it's just about how much tax revenues are coming in. And because we have requirements that a lot of businesses pay quarterly and a lot of citizens pay annually, one of the biggest tax due dates was the middle of April. And so what they were doing was taking a look at how much revenue came in in April? How how much money do we now have? And how long are we going to be able to use that to pay bills? Many people thought they had a pretty good, you know, revenue take in April and thought maybe it would go towards the end of June. But Janet Yellen came out and said, no, 
you know, June 1st is where we really think we'll be unable to continue to satisfy all of the government's obligations. And we don't really know for sure. And the reason it's uncertain is literally every single day, revenue goes in and bills come in. And they're only doing guesstimates of how much the revenue will be and how much the bills will be. So what'll happen is the bills will line up. You'd like to write the bill today, but you look and you're like, actually, we don't have enough money uh, to do it without issuing debt. So we have to wait. Some amount of time will pass. Revenue will come in. And then the bill that's at the top of the stack, they'll pay. You're going to imagine there's going to be a lot of American citizens who are wondering why they haven't gotten their social security check on time or why they... Their federal contractor, why they haven't gotten paid on time. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure is well, the second they start being late with those payments to fix the problem. I'll bet. So, why? I mean, the limit's been raised in the past. Uh, obviously, it's been raised dozens of times in the past. What is stopping this from happening now? And I know this is a, obviously, this is about politics and it's complicated, but as, as quick and simple as you can. Yeah. Well, um, Somebody in the Washington Post did a little riff on um, Dr. Seuss's The Waiting Game. I mean, they're all sort of waiting for something to happen for the stock market to show that its shares are tumbling on fears of the debt ceiling or somebody to sort of blink in the negotiations. So right now we're sort of in this just waiting game. Here's the problem. It's a fantastic bargaining chip if you think that the other side would really risk trashing the entire economy. You so know, th- this is a game of chicken at the moment. It's a game of chicken. The Speaker of the House, which is held by the Republicans, and the President on the other side, more or less. Yep, it's a game of chicken. And it's a, the problem for the President is that if the President caves and says, fine, I will give you all these things you want so you raise the debt ceiling... Well, forever after, the debt ceiling is going to be the bargaining chip for the party that's not in power to say, fine, we'll let the default happen. And with Republicans having put forward a bill, I mean, the bill is ridiculous in terms of being like a non-starter. They basically asked him to give up everything. It's just like highway robbery. Look, you give me everything you own. Or I'm going to burn your house down. Yeah. That's, that's the state of negotiating right now. So I think the only way the president can negotiate would be if he says, okay, I'm going to give you some of these things you want, but the debt ceiling's got to be repealed forever. It's got to be an end game because otherwise, once we breach the norm that it is just increased in a bipartisan way with no concessions and it starts being a thing everybody fights over, it will destroy policymaking and become the central bargaining chip of every year. So either you get a clean debt ceiling bill done, or you got to argue for, we're going to give you these concessions and you're going to get rid of the debt ceiling forever. It's not going to be, you're going to raise it $1.5 trillion. You're going to eliminate it. Betsy, from from this side of the Pacific, it, it, it looks like there is a lot going on. The banking crisis may not be over. The inflation is still too high. The Fed has just raised the rate again. And this is rumbling away in the background. 
Oh, I mean, the U.S. is an economy that is teetering on catastrophe while still actually being, you know, in a fantastic place. You know, it's just like in this, the economy is strong, the labor market is strong. I mean, you know, not to pick on Australia, but we're fighting our inflation at four and a half percent with five and a quarter percent interest rates. Like there's a a clear hammer being taken to bring inflation down. I think most people expect inflation mm. to be below 4% by the end of this year. But there's, there is a self-made, politically made catastrophe potential that's just dangling over the whole thing and could push the U.S. economy over the edge into complete catastrophe. But, you know, the Chair Powell was asked about this today, and he was like, make no mistake, you don't expect the Fed to bail us out if we default because the default problem is way bigger than anything the Fed could do to try to fix it. Watch this space. Betsy, thank you for joining us today and um, good luck over the next few weeks. Yeah, well, you put me in a bad mood now because it does seem kind of grim. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us. <laughs> this is nice talking with you. Betsy Stevenson's Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Michigan. We still think of Australia as the land of the fair go, but it's increasingly clear that it's not as fair as it used to be. The latest research documenting this comes not from a progressive NGO, but the sober, measured and very data-driven Actuaries Institute. Their paper, Not a Level Playing Field, paints a picture of increasing inequality. Elaine Grace is Chief Executive of the Actors Institute. To be honest, the results are looking quite disturbing. The gap between the richest and poorer is increasing, and unless a stronger policy approach is taken, it's just going to keep increasing. How long since inequality was sort of comparable to where we are now? So it hasn't been this high since the 1950s, so actually after World War II. Income inequality actually reduced after the 1950s, but since 1980s, it's been increasing. I remember talking to someone a few years ago who'd written a book about inequality over centuries, and I asked him where we got to in Australia, and he said, your inequality got to its lowest point in 1981, yeah. which is just such a long time ago, I, I could barely believe it. We should probably unpack it a, a little, Elaine, because there's income inequality and there's wealth inequality. They're not the same. They're obviously related. What are the numbers for these two? So income obviously represents the net income people get after tax and also looks at benefits. And what we've seen here is that the wealthiest 20% earn six times more than the lowest 20%. But we're seeing a much greater impact in wealth, which is quite frightening. So the wealthiest 20% actually have 230 times more assets than the lowest 20%. And that's significant, especially, I think, as we come into this kind of economic downturn. As you know, wealth creates kind of like a cushion for people during downtimes. Uh, and obviously, we'll see that the, the lowest income will be more exposed during those times. Yeah. And of course, it has a, there's a feedback, isn't there? Once you have wealth, it's easier to get more wealth. It to does, get more wealth more in more these the times. Work. All right. So the, the report explores how this actually affects people's lives. We won't go through all of them, but what about the economic differences between the top and the bottom quintiles? So we see that the lowest 20% are seven times more likely to be unemployed, 
48% of them have a high fraction of income coming from welfare compared to 1% of the wealthiest people. And 31% have a, a very high poverty rate. Now, those statistics are probably expected in some ways. But the one we found most disturbing was probably that they're nine times more likely to be caring for someone. That could either be, you know, someone aged or a long-term health or disability issue. Well, that goes to health and it also goes to the opportunities you'll forego if you're caring. What are the health concerns that you found? So the lowest 20%, again, 1.3 times more likely to be obese, twice as likely to die by suicide, twice as likely to suffer psychological distress. And we're also actually seeing a 50% higher rate of mortality. So, you know, there's significant health impact, obviously, for this lower 20%. Yeah, and these things are connected. And, and so is the next thing I want to highlight with you. The housing crisis is very much in the headlines at the moment. You'll be seeing that there too, essentially. Yeah, so we see uh, 34% less likely to own their home. And look, that has significant impact, especially in retirement, because owning your home is one of those, you know, the greatest indicators of poverty levels at that level. And also, obviously, we're seeing a lot at the moment with increasing interest rates, four times more likely to have recently been unable to pay rent or a mortgage. So really seeing that housing stress. There are other indicators that you're, you're calling social. What are we talking about there? Yeah, so obviously, as a society, these are some of the things that we're, we're most disturbed to see. So three times more likely to be a recent victim of violent crime, seven times more likely to experience homelessness, five times more likely to have a child found at risk of harm by child protection services, and 13 more times likely to uh, give birth while a teenager. What about causes, Elaine? How much of this is something, again, we've been hearing about a lot, which is intergenerational differences. Older people in Australia tend to have more assets than younger people. How much of it's that? So a sixth of it is of the inequality can be attributed to that age difference factor. So as you said, there's there's natural patterns that as you get older, you acquire more wealth. And we're seeing that. What about other things like gender and disability and cultural background? They're fairly equally split, but altogether probably around a tenth of inequality can be explained to the combined ones of those, gender, disability, geography and cultural background. That's actually less than I thought. I think I would have assumed that they would have counted for more. In terms of the factors, the drivers that we can actually allocate out and, and quantify separately, that's that's what it's showing. What about but it's still enough. <laughs> it's still enough, I think, in there. Like, I mean, even, you know, we saw, for example, a $16,000 difference just due to your gender in terms of your income. So, you know, that all adds up. Everybody would rather have the extra $16,000. They would rather have the 16000 yeah. What about education? That makes a difference, surely. So education around 8%. And again, what we saw was a 20,000 difference for those with a university degree in terms of income. And work itself as a kind of wider thing? Yeah, so obviously we see lower incomes for unemployed and retirees, and that's probably around 5%. So where does all the rest of it come from? Because my maths is not as yeah. good as yours, but that's clearly <laughs> so not missing. most of it. No, so look, we're missing around three-fifths, uh, and three-fifths would remain even if these differences in the other drivers were eliminated. So about... Um, Two-fifths, as we said, can be attributed to those demographic factors like age, gender, disability, cultural background, inequalities. 
But solving structural issues such as that gender wage gap or low labour force participation will not completely remove it. The rest really corresponds to current levels of natural variation in income, reflecting different patterns of earning, different occupations or hours worked in current policy settings. So you'd always expect, I guess, in our current societies, some difference uh, in income. The problem is when it gets too much, that's when we're concerned. So theoretically, if we had the political will and the nous, we could solve two-fifths of it, but we'd still be left with that bigger chunk. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, of course, you can, you know, you can go extreme more on, on uh, some of your, your policy positions, but I guess most societies would expect some variation between the rich and the poor, and that would be, you know considered, I guess, more of an acceptable level when you compare it against some of the countries that we would say, yeah. you know, have less inequality. But we've got 40% more than we should, more or less. Is yes. That, yeah. yeah. All right. So the report says there's strong evidence of current upward pressures that will make this worse in the future unless we take some action. What can we do? So, yeah, look, I think we need a stronger policy approach to tackle this widening inequality gap. And that really starts with any single policy change that's considered just needs to include inequality as part of that. What is the impact? But we're really looking here at, you know, all tax policy, social security policy, investment in public services and income tax credits. So take tax policy. There can often be a problem if you just tinker here and there. We think, you know, the whole tax system needs to be reviewed so there's more fairness in both the income and the wealth tax system. At the moment, I guess we see that, you know, the progressive system being applied to the income. We probably see that less being applied to the wealth, which is probably why we've also had this change since the 1980s. We're talking to Bob Brunick at the ANU. He always says tax yes. and transfer policy. So there's probably other things we could do with our transfers that would address inequality as well. Yes, exactly. So look, this is this is where Australia needs to consider what kind of society it wants. Like, I mean, obviously, some of these social impacts are really difficult for these people. But even if we ignore that, this is also causing budget stress for the government. So what we think is actually this shows that if you intervene in certain places, you're going to get great outcomes, not only for the people, because a lot of these issues are connected, but also hopefully in the long term, it'll reduce that stress and just create a better society, a better economy. So as we said earlier, those things like people caring for people, potentially, if we can provide more care for people or more childcare, then that enables people to go out, be part of the community, work, uh, and also potentially have less mental health as stress as well. As you talk about it and, and reading the report the other day, I was struck by when you get to what we could do, these things are pretty well understood. I wonder if this goes to the sort of country we want to have and the sort of country we think we have, because that's been part of how we think about Australia, that, that it's a fair place, but it's increasingly clear that it's less fair than it used to be. I agree. We want to bring a really objective analytical lens to this situation. Like, I mean, it's quite complex, but we wanted to just lay it all out. This is how Australia currently looks. Then it is up to Australia to decide what kind of society it wants, what kind of, you know, inequity it wants. Now, I've always found quite positive responses from Australians. They care. You know, they want people to have a fair go. They don't want this huge divide. And as we've seen from other countries, Inequity levels, if they increase too far, they can they can really cause problems for 
for society. They can create an us-them mentality and that's not good for anyone. Also, we found that 70% of Australians actually, when when surveyed, thought income disparities were too, too large. So I don't think Australians want it. But what we now need to do is lay it out and actually come up with some solutions to make it more fair, to give people more of an opportunity to, to achieve better in life. Elaine Grace from the Actuaries Institute. Growth in productivity is a kind of magic. It means that for a set of inputs, you're getting more outputs. And in Australia, it's been slowing down. To find out why and work out what to do about it, the Productivity Commission recently finished a five-year review of productivity. Stephen King was one of the authors. To understand the size of the impact, our average productivity growth, say around a 60-year period, uh, is about 1.8%. And over the last decade, we've dropped down to about 1.1%. It doesn't sound like a big amount, but it's about a third if you consider that 0.7% compared to the one8 So we've had a big drop in productivity, which is reflected in lots of developed countries. But we tend to be doing worse. So why is that? What we've seen in Australia is a huge shift in what we do. We now have a services economy. Mm. We have an economy where 90% of people work in services, where 80% of our output is services-based, where we have a very large and increasing, really important group of what are called non-market services, You know those key things like health, education, human services, that we all want and need and are a great part of our society. But the sort of gains that we saw in productivity in mining innovation, agricultural innovation, they're still occurring, but they only account for about 20% of our economy now. And we're not seeing that same level of innovation in the services sector generally. You mentioned something else as well, Stephen, which I think we'll go into, but I just want to make sure I've identified it. A lot of the services that we get now talking about health and education, public administration, it is quite difficult to push up productivity there, isn't it? Yeah, so that area is growing in importance and it's that area that has seen the least productivity growth. In the last 20 years, we essentially have seen zero growth in labour productivity. So it's well behind the rest of the Australian economy. Yes. You at the Productivity Commission have done a lot of consultation investigation And you've identified five key themes that will help drive productivity. Firstly, uh, building a skilled and adaptable workforce. This means, I guess, better funding, better investing in a better education system across all levels. It's more than better funding. It's about working out how to use our funding better, how to use technology better, how to assist, particularly at primary and high schools, how to assist teachers to teach better rather than, as we found, doing an awful lot of administration, which really is not teaching, it's not benefiting them and it's certainly not benefiting our students. Yeah. You touched on using technology for this, so harnessing data, digital technology and diffusing new ideas is another focus. I actually think that the pandemic showed us we could make some very quick progress on this, but we need to continue. Absolutely. The pandemic probably accelerated some areas of use, particularly of data and digital technology of that video conferencing, of telehealth, those type of tools, probably advance them by five to 10 years. We now need to make sure we reap the benefits of that. Part of that we're seeing in the data, people are now working more from home. They're having more flexible work environments. That's fantastic. 
they're avoiding commutes, they're having higher quality of life. That's a wonderful outcome. In some other areas, we're really not seeing that same sort of progress. So a lot of teaching, for example, went online during the pandemic. Mm. But we haven't really leveraged that to say, well, how do we build a 21st century teaching environment that incorporates in-person and video technology? For example, specialty teachers. We know that if you're in in some areas of uh, urban centres, but particularly out in rural and regional Australia, that if your kids go to the local high school, they're limited in their subject choice. Why? We can have teachers providing video classes into the schools in different specialities. Now, some of that's already occurring. Some of it was spurred on by COVID. But we need to make sure that that sort of use of technology is the norm, not the exception in our education, in our health systems, and in other parts of society. I want to come back to this thing that we've talked about a bit already, which is the government-funded services close to zero and productivity growth. What are your suggestions for lifting productivity in this in this hard-to-budge sector? To change the culture, to move away from a very, very risk-averse approach move towards a system that's based on outcomes rather than inputs, to move to a system where the recipients of the services, now that may be patients, that may be students, maybe the parents, where they're giving their feedback on those outcomes Mm -hmm. and then individual groups, whether they're hospitals, whether they're uh, individual schools, are able to innovate have the incentive to adopt different approaches, to try things out, and to really do what what we'd expect to see in a private situation. We know that can occur, by the way. A couple of years ago, we did a great little project on uh, innovations in care and chronic health conditions. When we looked into this, we found there was already this sort of innovation going on. Simple uses of technology, such as sending SMS texts to remind people to take their medicines. It didn't have to be sort of super high tech to get the gains. Sharing information between primary care and tertiary care so that when you go into a hospital, the first question isn't, oh, what medicines are you on? But the hospital actually has access to the relevant data, which the government has, of course. It's just that at the moment the data isn't used properly. So those sort of innovations, we've seen them work. Unfortunately, at the moment, they tend to work despite the system rather than because of the system. The culture, as you say, where often things are rules-based and prescriptive rather than allowing agency and autonomy to the people who are actually making the decisions and perhaps can make a big difference. There's still a couple more to get through. One of them is securing net zero emissions at least cost How do you think we should do this briefly? Unfortunately, the way we've gone about it in Australia has been uh, uncoordinated. Uncoordinated. That that, that is a very polite (laughs) economist way of putting it, I have to say. Uh, We have a a whole range of different programs that are all over the shops, but what we need to do is really move to that broader system of creating the requirements for carbon abatement more generally and then allowing the sort of scheme where trade-offs can occur between different industries. And that's got to be done in a transparent way. It's got to be done in a way that's robust. Yes. Uh, we don't want to have offsets that simply that aren't hiding working. problems. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, selling the same piece of rainforest five times. So I'm not suggesting in any way this is easy, 
but it's got to be that integrated approach because if you leave holes, people will jump through the holes rather than reducing their carbon abatement. And the last one, Stephen, is creating a more dynamic and competitive economy. I know that this is already a focus for Andrew Lee, who's the Assistant Minister for Competition. Yeah, and uh, some bits of that, People say, well, the Productivity Commission would say that, wouldn't they? There's red tape issues, there's issues of unnecessary regulation. Mm. But there is some really interesting stuff that's occurring around competition, around improving that dynamism. For example, Jenna Cascott-Leib, the chair of the ACCC, gave a National Press Club speech recently where she outlined some merger reform proposals, ones that I think are pretty much in line with suggestions that we put forward in our report. So I think we now have concrete proposals coming out of the regulator and hopefully the government will be able to uh, bring those on board because that's the sort of thing we need to do in a whole range of areas of the Australian economy just to keep moving forward. Stephen, it's always good to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Thanks so much, Richard. Stephen King is a commissioner at the Productivity Commission. That's it for now. The money's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.